Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. This morning, we welcome listeners from around the world to a special edition of Global IQ with The Economist Editor-in-Chief John Micklefite. John is calling from London to join us for this morning's live broadcast discussing his editor's report, Taming Leviathan, the Role of the State, which was published in this week's newspaper. As you submit questions for John throughout the broadcast via the chat feature of the online forum, we ask that you please include your name and location so we know from where you're listening. A special greeting to council members, economist subscribers, and clients of our sponsors, Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally, and Jones Day, one firm worldwide. If this is your first time tuning in, we encourage you to listen to Global IQ AudioCast archives available on both iTunes and the Council's website at dfwworld.org forward slash Global IQ. During the program, you have the chance to win prizes courtesy of The Economist and our sponsors by being the first to correctly answer one of three challenge questions via the online chat. So stay tuned for your opportunity to win. After studying history at Oxford, John Mickelside worked as a banker at Chase Manhattan before joining the newspaper as a finance correspondent in 1987. Since then, his roles at The Economist have included setting up the Bureau in Los Angeles, being the newspaper's media correspondent, editing the business section, running the New York Bureau, and editing the United States section. He has been editor-in-chief since March 2006, and The Economist now has a circulation of 1.4 million readers. Micklesite was named Editor's Editor of the Year at the British Society of Magazine Editors 2010 Annual Awards, and he's also the uh, co-author of five books along with Adrian Woolridge, including the bestseller, God is Back, How the Global Rise of Faith is Changing the World. Welcome, John. We're so glad you're with us today. Thank you very much. And uh, I, I do want to add that uh, as far as questions, John has kindly said, we'll, we'll take this conversation anywhere you'd like it to go. We can talk about Libya and Japan, but let's start with the special report. Today, many governments appear at a, a tipping point where the size and scope of benefits and services they attempt to offer outweigh their ability to, to afford them. Our appetite has certainly become very large, and yet there are real signs in the U.K., the United States, and even now in China that the era of big government may be ending or at the very least is entering a new period. Uh, this special report, Taming Leviathan, addresses this and, and many other issues. As editor, I, I suspect you have a, a, a lot of uh, discretion on what you can choose to write about. John, what led you to tackle this subject now, um, as well as, if I remember right, late last year in the uh, world in 2011, uh, you also spoke about the role of the state? I suppose I just gradually got more interested in it. It's one of those things where you, you, you as editor, you often try to look for things that you can, you can look across boundaries because it gives you an excuse as you wander around the world to see people. Um, so there is some element of, of, of self-satisfaction from, it, from that angle. But actually, the more and more I looked at it, the more I thought is that this is very much, this is the issue which will dominate, I think, politics over the next 10 or 15 years. And in America so far, you've only seen it really at the state level. You've seen it in Wisconsin, you've seen it in different places. And in Washington, you really haven't seen it at all. You've got pretty much useless budgets from both Republicans and Democrats. But the next presidential election, I think, in some way, will be a replay 
of the 2010 British election, where suddenly the, the, the debate changed. It suddenly became about what do we cut? What do we, you know, we, we cannot go on forever. Um, the, the, the quotation at the moment which seems to sit in my brain almost continually is this one from an American economist called Herb Stein, who said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. And you can apply that to Mubarak's regime. You can apply it to the American property market. Apply it now to the Chinese property market. So I think you sure as hell can apply it to the to the state. I think the state has just got ever larger and there's been so little attempts really to reform it and try and move it into a different direction. You, you say in, in one part of your article that a rethink, a rethink is imminent and, and maybe California is, is a good place to look at first. Um, you're going to be having a special report on California next month. In fact, that will be our di- this discussion in, in, in April. And, and you write, California is now widely studied an example of, of what to avoid. Why does California stand out so strongly? California is fascinating for two reasons. <clears throat> One is that it has the most, the clearest possible division between private sector and public sector. It has arguably the most inventive, clever private sector in the world, and it has arguably the most dysfunctional government in the Western world. We compete with one or two other places, but it's it's certainly in the you know about as bad as it gets. That's interesting. But secondly, also it's interesting because you have direct democracy there, and that actually makes it particularly interesting to me because the more and more I looked at government, the more and more, to be honest, and I apologize to everyone listening, it's your fault. It's 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 not just disregard everything the Tea Party drones on about it all being the fault of left wing politicians and self serving public unions. It, it is that. They they've certainly played a role in making the state bigger. But so have right wing politicians and so have voters in a massive way. It's the right who kept on spending money on prisons, kept on giving money to farmers, who keep on giving a huge amount of money on defense and stuff like that, who had the wars on drugs, the wars on terror. These have all blown up the state gigantically in every conceivable way. This is something which both left and right have gone for. Why is California typifies that? But more than that, because there's direct democracy, I think the hypocrisy of voters is displayed most vividly there. Because again and again and again in California, people have voted for more government, more services. They endlessly want more, and yet they refuse to pay for it. Um, John, you might touch on what you mean by direct democracy in California, uh, because it is different. Ballot initiatives. It's almost, in other places, it's possible for voters to say it's all the fault of those scumbag politicians. Uh, In California, I just don't think that's true. You can't. Many of the things, many of the reasons why California is so dysfunctional is because voters have actually chosen to make decisions in ballot initiatives. And so it's, it's more conspicuously the fault of, of people rather than just some Machiavellian plot to do with the politicians at the top of it. And that, to me, is really interesting. You know, I, I, I adore California. I lived there for a long time and go back there at any drop of the hat. But it is the fact that government is so bad is, I think, directly attributable to Californians, and I apologize to all of them who are listening. You know, I think you're right. We do have this sort of presumption that liberals help the poor and they're the ones spending the money. But really, as, as you point out with that incredible example of Don Hovey about being a prison guard and how he built this special interest, it, it made me think that maybe I should leave Dallas and, and go be work in a prison in California. But maybe you could tell us a bit how how he established this this real special interest group that has so much power. Well, prison guards are one of the most powerful public sector unions in California, and they controlled a huge part of it. The, the vested, what was clever, particularly clever, I think, about the prison guards were two things. One, 
yeah, and, and I, you, I was, I think Don Levy's a very clever man. Is what he, what he did was several things. He pushed, obviously pushed up pay and perks and all those things, and he allied them very, very conspicuously, both with people who were building prisons and also with Republican lawmakers, and that was smart from the point of view of, um, of the prison guards. But also more cleverly, I think he went for a sort of broader message and set up things on behalf of victims' rights, campaign for the three strikes rule and things like that. And that, that I, those, all those things definitely helped prison guards. Um, they helped increase the number of people going to prison in California quite considerably and thereby increase the, the growth of the state. But it, it, what's interesting to me almost about that as well is the fact that it shows the power of vested interests, is that we... There's, there's a complicated series of economics behind it, but the, but the underlying point is that actually vested interests, be it the prison guards, be it teachers' unions um, in, on the democratic side, um, be it farmers, there's a whole series of groups of people where it is massively in their interest to campaign for individual things, and it's very, very difficult to construct a kind of coalition to, 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 to make a difference on the other side Put it this way, certainly I was living in California back in the 1990s and everyone used to occasionally talk then about the amazing perks that prison guards got. But it's gradually increased and increased and increased. It's only been recently when California's really begun to get ever more bust that people have begun to look at it. And that's the way that vested interests work. And it works particularly avidly, I think, in places where you have gerrymandering. Because the level to which a special interest can work in a primary system is beyond compare, I think, really. If, if you, your ability as a special interest to be able to get just the primary voters on one side to work for you, I think, is, is, a, is a brilliant system. The public sector unions are, are fantastic about that in, in many, many areas, mainly on the democratic side. But it's not yeah. an easy... And, I, you know, again, I, I give the impression of just attacking the American government consistently. Um, you know, this is true in many, many other parts of the world, too. One of the things that you write about, though, is how special interest groups have sort of evolved, where at one point they were more broad-based and, and now they're becoming um, more, more narrow, narrower. That's true. I think particularly on business you see that in a big way. Again, use California as an example. California, you read books about it, you talk to the main historians of California 30, 40 years ago. California had a broad-based business lobby. There was an element of big business um, working with people like Pat Brown, working with Ronald Reagan, actually, as well, that, that it was, business had a sort of general interest, and sure, business wanted low taxes, business wanted some things for itself, but it wasn't absolutely targeted on particular tax breaks and stuff like that, and it had a general interest in having good universities, good roads, all those sort of things. What's happened is that, and there's an economist called Manko Olson, whose Olson's law in some ways proves this, is it makes more sense for each individual business actually now to pursue things by themselves. If you run a particular sort of insurance company, you are going to get more benefits for that insurance company if you spend a lot of money in Sacramento trying to get particular legislative things which would help you gigantically. The, the vaguer benefits of good universities, good roads, etc., don't come so directly to you. So what's happened, and you can see this again in Washington, is that lobbying has tended to fragment gigantically down to much, much more narrow interest groups. And those, again, work against the long-term interest. There's a number we have. We had a couple of weeks ago 
about if you got rid of all the tax breaks, and that's around a trillion dollars a year in America. Well, if, you know, that could all mean everyone paid much lower taxes in exchange for getting rid of those. Mm-hmm. Um, before we, uh, before I give you the opportunity to help redraft the U.S. Constitution, uh, let me ask uh, this question from Vikas Deshmukh. Uh, Vikas asks, it is said that the state should be a facilitator, regulator, and enforcer for the industries, but not the owner. If you believe in this, what is your view of the government's ownership of GM? Actually, oddly, I'm, I was one of those people who have to, I sort of owe Barack Obama an apology on that, is that I thought it, it looked a disastrous idea. It's sort of, a not rather annoyingly from my point of view, it worked, worked, it's worked reasonably well. They, <laughs> they got it in and out quite quickly. Um, I think there's a very good question. There's a very odd thing to do with America at the moment, just to use this as an example of introducing a second large field about it. The thing which is incredible about the public sector on a level I hadn't really anticipated, is the level to which there is variance in performance. If you buy a car today, and you buy a Japanese car or an American car, you know, the levels of difference of performance between it are so small that the, the, the element to which one car company is better than another. I mean, GM, 30, 40 years ago, used to make demonstrably worse cars than Japanese and were hammered. Now, yes, it's got problems, yes, it's got difficulties, it's had difficulties, but the levels of performance are extremely high. You go to any element of the public sector, you look at the gap between American public schools and Finnish public schools. You look at the differences between just different forms of public schools at different ends of Texas, you can find amazing numbers of difference, even in areas which are somewhat similar demographically. In British health service, you can find two areas right next door to each other, one effectively eight times more efficient than the other one. And I think there's a large reason behind this is the level to which information has not really traveled around the system. These sort of variances just don't happen in the public, in the private sector, because they get battered out almost immediately. In the public sector, voters don't really, are only just beginning to realize how bad their schools are, how bad their um, hospitals are, and so on. And I think that's, that, what's happening is as international education rankings come out, it is much, much more difficult for even the most eloquent teachers' unions leaders in America to sit there and say it's all about resources. It's so stunningly obvious that it isn't. It's to do with restrictive practices. It's to do with getting good teachers. It's to do with rewarding those good teachers and being able to fire the lousy ones because you can see that in the international rankings. You can also see it increasingly if you look at schools within America as well. And as that information begins to spread, it makes a difference. And one of the areas which, to me, was astounding is people pointed out that actually privatization, something which you would imagine would have happened back in the 19, you know, that, that was the 1980s, there are vast elements of American infrastructure which are still owned by the state, water, airports, ports, all those things, which many other people have privatized around the world and done quite nicely out of. There's no real need for the state to own those things. And yet again, this hasn't sort of traveled in any kind of meaningful way. It's sort of like how fed up can you get before you start demanding uh, action. And, and, and you raised this in the article. You found that once people have around $12,000 in purchasing power parity, they begin to expect and demand both political freedom and proper government services. I wonder if you could tell us more about how you, how you discovered that and maybe give some examples. The place where that is most applicable to is China. Um, if you look at Asia, you look at places like South Korea and Taiwan, they both put up with very unaccountable versions of government. 
um, when they were poor, as they got richer, they got much less. Uh, they, they began to demand much more both democracy and also accountability. And as, I think out of all the surprises to me in wandering around the world and looking at government, Chinese government was arguably the most surprising um, to the extent that I had very much swallowed, I think, the line you get repeatedly from big business around the world that isn't as amazing. You can go to Beijing and you can get immediate and dramatic performance by wonderful technocrats who not only will allow you to open your factory but will build a freeway straight to the door so everything they can want is you know these are much more high caliber people than the morons you find in austin or geneva or brussels or washington or westminster and the the answer is when you go to china what comes through is one they're sort of right in one way. The technocrats at the top of China are very impressive. There is a, there's, a, there's quite a high-performing civil service at the top. Um, secondly, it's perhaps not that surprising that a dictatorship is able to get you a factory and build you a road somewhat quicker than the democracy. And then much, much more than that, it was down at the bottom. When you look at the actual service handed out to normal Chinese citizens, they began to realize that this government really doesn't work at all. In fact, they have, I think those technocrats actually realize what a dramatic problem they have in terms of delivering basic healthcare, education and stuff to people. And the particular, the center of it really is the migrant workers. Because if you go to a town like Shenzhen, 14 million people live there. Well, only 2 million, 2.5 million are residents. And they're the people who can get the education, the healthcare and so on. Everyone else technically is a migrant. Even people who's been, you know, I went to get into school where they were full of lots of 11, 12-year-olds and I asked them where they were from because they weren't getting, this was a school set up by a charity because they couldn't get it from the state. And I asked them where they were born, assuming they'd all say from sort of northern China and somewhere, and they all said Shenzhen. And I said, I tried to ask again. And the reason was they'd been born, they'd, they'd lived for 12 years in the city, but they still didn't qualify for free for, for, for the education. And so I think there's a, there is a big problem in China, I think, in terms of trying to deal with government and that, that, that to some extent there's a sort of chimera has been created of people thinking it's good at those things. So what you're really saying is in all these glowing statistics that we hear all the time about the number of engineers being graduated, uh, I mean there really is now a, a, a large underclass of Chinese citizens who aren't even getting the basic elementary education? I think there are bits of it which are very good. Um, I think the the push into universities has been done very well, albeit it's largely a middle-class thing. I mean, you could argue middle-class everywhere, but, but, but China's attempt to grow universities is fantastic. Some schools are brilliant. You, the rankings, which I cited earlier, Shanghai finished top, miles ahead of both America and Britain, and you know, even ahead of places like Finland and, um, and, and, and Singapore and the places which are traditionally seen at the top. I think there is a, there is a sort of problem to do that with exactly what sort of schools were included in it. But, you know, bits of, bit, China is working at this stuff, but it is not the paragon that people like to depict. Um, Let me I dig a little bit deeper here and ask, you know, it sounds almost like an apartheid uh, class system. How, why has China, China been so slow in, in evolving in, in, in this area and in, in allowing this class of, of black workers to, um, to, be, to be created? Yes, it is. I should add, that's what they're, they're called, black workers. Um, um, Right. They happen. The answer is, I think you have tremendous economic growth. You open up the markets. You have a state which does not move anywhere near quick enough behind it. 
and this is not you know, me pointing this out, might be news to the heads of various large American companies, but it's not news to the people who run China. The Wen Jiabao, the Prime Minister, just announced actually again, and Hu Jintao again last week, about the idea that unless they get some kind of institutional political reform, they run the risk of endangering the economic success they've had. I mean, one part is because it's a, a state which is fantastically bad at giving away control, but the second part is that it, it's just been a blur of economic activity. And so a lot of these things have tended to get pushed into the background. But you can see quite uh, one of the senior Chinese um, uh, sort of, I suppose, politician come businessman I saw the other day, and we asked him about this appearance of strikes and the um, kind of industrial unrest in different bits of China. And I expected him to be quite sort of firm on it, but he wasn't. He was completely opposite and said, no, that's the big problem. We need to get more income going to the bottom part of China. And actually, from a long-range point of view, that's a, that is a good thing It's a, you know, because that will create consumption, which in the end will help that trade balance with America, which people worry about so much. But, the, but it's also to do with trying to make that society more equal. But if you have a government which doesn't provide the things that many Chinese want, then that makes it enormously difficult. Why, why do Chinese people save so much? Because they know the healthcare system and all its bits is pretty useless, so they're going to have to spend money on it. And, and it's, it's a huge monumental project. They would like to turn it into Singapore, but even the sort of Singaporean level of um, democracy... I think it's something they would find extremely difficult to tolerate. Mm -hmm. One thing that I was not aware of is this issue of uh, how much local government revenue is uh, derived from land rights sales. And I think you mentioned that yeah, 46%. Yeah. I think this symbolizes it. It's the, the way in which it works is that the government, the, the traditional way in which a local, or the current way in which a local government finances itself in China is fairly simple. You, you have a city... On the outskirts of the city, you have land which the local government seizes, sort of having paid the people who live there a miserable sum for it, and then turns it over to developers who develop it. Um, land sales are, I think, 40% of local government revenue, um, according to one, according to the Chinese government. See, that that I think is a, is an amazing statistic because it is not sustainable. It, will not, it cannot continue like that, and again, it perpetuates this class system that the disenfranchised rural lot get nothing but it helps the middle class and that lovely property boom that we talked about earlier before we redraft the u.s constitution uh let's give a subscription to the economist to one of our listeners the challenge question is the share of china's gdp produced by enterprises that are not majority owned by the state is about is it 20 percent 50 percent or 70%. Uh, be the first to send the correct answer in on the online chat form, and you'll receive a subscription to The Economist. All right. Um, UVA professor Larry Sabato argued in his book, uh, I think it was published about two years ago, A More Perfect Constitution. Um, he said that the founding fathers would be horrified by the emphasis on fundraising, the permanence of large congressional staffs, and the partisan deadlock that we've already discussed a bit today. Um, you wrote, John, that no corporation would stick to the same organizational design for 230 years, and yet that's what we've seen in the United States. Um, what specifically might you suggest as reasonable changes or amendments that might make the United States government more responsive? 
<laughs> how, to, how to lose hundreds of thousands of readers by, by redrafting American well, well, we're about to talk about the UK, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, no, but I think there is, an, there is an issue. I mean, the interesting thing about America is for all the young country elements about America, you actually have the oldest constitution pretty much of anybody because all the European ones have been turned upside down by, by rather grotesque wars of the past century. What, what, what does strike me about, I mean, there are many wonderful things about the US Constitution, but as an administrative device for government, you know, it's, it's a difficult one because, for a start, the, as, I, as I point out, the, you know, the founding fathers weren't in a position to imagine what it would be like when California and North Dakota joined the Union. And they certainly weren't imagining a state of California. California has 35, 40 million people. Well, that would be several times bigger than America was when everything began. And actually, even more strangely, if you have, I think, California has 40, I'm going to get the number wrong, but I think it has 40 times more people than North Dakota, yet it shares the same number of Senate seats. Well, you have a number just in those serious statistics I've put forward. Um, you have an element whereby government has not moved in the same way as corporate structures have. And they're often good reason. The Americans, that's the reason why I approach this subject nervously, but Americans revere their constitution. There's a, there's a, there's a huge amount of good, you know, so it's an amazing document in many ways. But <clears throat> from the point of view of organizing government, you have to ask yourself whether that's a, whether those sort of imbalances are a good idea. And you could look at many other ones around the world as well. It's not just an American problem. It's, it's one pretty endemic everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you touched on this just a minute ago about how European governments, because of some of the uh, wars and other uh, issues they've had, uh, have been able to ad- ad- adapt sweeping changes. Certainly that's happening now with uh, Cameron's coalition government. And maybe you could tell our listeners more about the big society and how this is being received. Well, I, I'm, in, I'm in the weird position of, um, of having to sort of hype Britain rather strangely is that I think Britain actually is very interesting now from the point of view of, if you accept my premise, that redesigning the state, because it cannot go on forever. I mean, that's that's the thing which sits over Obama, it sits over the Republicans, and you could argue that Tea Party is a sort of inchoate attempt to try and express that, that you can't, America cannot end up with a system where 100% of GDP is spent in healthcare, which I think happens like... 2060 under current statistics, you cannot end up with a system even in 15 years where 30% of GDP goes on, no, 25% goes on entitlements. Um, something has got to be done about this. Something has got to, their choices both in terms of reforming the managerial side of the public sector, which is largely what I concentrate on, and then more harshly, there are issues about how exactly you structure benefits, you know, how exactly you deal with things like pension ages, which I would certainly push up considerably, because in the end it's not just a question. I think the the state is so inefficient that you can slim it pretty aggressively just by making it do sort of on average. If if you merely brought the bad bits of it up to the current average levels, you would save enough to reduce the state back to pretty reasonable levels. But But the harder question beyond that is whether the state should be doing all the things that it wants to do at the moment, whether it should be supplying quite as many universal benefits, and whether quite so much money from the state in terms of social transfer should be flowing straight towards the middle middle class as opposed to the um, the really poorest society, and particularly to the elderly. 
So all those questions sit there. And why is Britain interesting? Because through a mixture out of luck, opportunism, and a little bit of ideology, going back to Margaret Thatcher, the Conservative came into government and then had to form a government with the Liberals around this idea that they had to do something about this ever-growing state. And so they have embarked on this project, and the name of it is, the name most often associated with it is the Big Society. I actually think the particular bit about the Big Society, which is the idea of using charities, is the less, least interesting bit of it. The two really interesting ideas are pluralism, where you end up with a very small central state. There was somebody yesterday, I do caused a fuss by talking about only having a thousand people in the middle of Whitehall and then the rest of it being contracted out buying in services from people and that is exactly what has happened to corporate life you know go back to my example of the cars Ford used to own the fields on which grazed the sheep whose wool went into the chair covers in its cars that 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 world is gone Ford now contracts out a huge amount even, you know, engines are made sometimes by other people. And, and the state, to some extent, I think has got to move in that direction. It's got to embrace some of that efficiency. Uh, the l- other bit where Cameron is interesting is localism, is trying to push power down to people to allow them to make the choices about which schools they go to, about um, which who becomes their police chief, somewhat American idea, mayors, all those sort of ideas. And so I think they are interesting. It's, it's, it's also the level of the cuts. Cameron has set out and he's cutting some departments by around 20%. Those are sort of cuts which would be unimaginable in Washington at the moment, but at some time they're going to have to come. And what, what, what intrigues me particularly in terms of conservative thought at the moment is that I, you know, I'm one of those people who's always looked to the great organs of right-wing ideology in Washington as being the places that you would find these ideas, that you would look at them. And actually, at the moment, Britain is actually ahead of it, the sort of Thatcherite, Reaganite. Thatcher, Thatcher and Reagan marched in, in, in step. America and Britain aren't really marching in step at the moment. There is, there is some stuff happening in the States, I agree. But, but in general, I think Britain is very interesting. And they, they, I, I'm not saying it's bound to work. Um, I think the Tories have made mistakes to do with healthcare. They've made mistakes to do with education. They may be doing too much too quickly, but the one thing I'm absolutely certain about is in about a year and a half, when the presidential election really gets down to what the hell people are going to do about this monster, then Britain actually will begin to figure a bit as an example, both in good and bad terms, um, about the way that America ultimately will have to go. But essentially, um, the British people have sort of realized that the state had been too big and action was going to have to be taken. So has the, we, we have opposition... the huge of, We have the huge advantage, unlike America, of beginning to go broke, which right. is <laughs> somewhat, somewhat more urgent than it is. Well, well, sorry, it's a bad joke, but it was, it was partly mm. that we had a much more outsized financial sector for what we had, and so taking on all the debt to do with the bank. It was partly because Gordon Brown, the previous prime minister, had been on a huge spending splurge anyway, so there really wasn't anything left. Um, by the time the crisis hit. But I think it's also to do with the fact that we we don't have America's ability to keep on defying economic gravity. I mean, if you have a budget budget deficit of 10% of GDP, if you have the levels of debt that America is currently building up, you could argue, indeed we did argue, that Barack Obama's last budget proposal was a sort of 
wonderful attempt to scare the markets by its inanity almost so much that it forced some kind of crisis to make people begin to think about things like entitlements. Um, Americans get away with it because people, and you can see what's happening in the Middle East at the moment, people still view the dollar as a place where they want to have assets. But I think in the end, the market's ability to keep on doing that is not sustainable. America runs up against two things. If you have a system, if you had a company which kept on making losses again and again and again, either you have to find some new way of raising money, which means increasing taxes, which I think is not in a big way possible in America, not least because capital is so movable now and will go overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, but secondly, the alternative is to borrow more, and I just think the appetite of the bond markets to keep on letting America off that one, I think, is going to change. No, I think you're right, and as you said, the next presidential election may be really defining on this. Hassan Haq uh, came back uh, and, and noticed how we'd use that expression, black, and he said, why does China call the poor workers black? What is the origin of that? It's, I think it's not, I think it's, it, it, I remember I asked, and I have to admit this is for a translator, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not a sort of racial thing, if that's what he's worried about. It's just, it's, I think it's to do with, um, the way in which the, the forms were written. And I, the honest truth, I don't know. It's a phrase which you, it, it occurred a couple of times when I was interviewing Chinese bureaucrats. They would say, oh, you mean the black workers? Um, and I think it means in the sense that they're not included in, for, as I understand it, it's something to do with the paper rather than, um, it's, it's nothing to do with race, if that's what, which I presume is the sort of starting point of his question. Great, good. Um, Still, nobody has given us the correct answer about the share of Chinese GDP produced by enterprises that are not majority owned by the state. Um, everybody is saying 20%. So I want to be sure we give out a subscription to The Economist. So be the first to tell us whether it's 50 or 70%, and you'll get an, a full year subscription to The Economist. John, you said civil services are not equal. If you are getting a degree in uh, public policy, uh, probably you should head over to Singapore and you'd make quite a high salary. Maybe you could uh, tell us a, a bit more about how Singapore treats its uh, civil servants and its bureaucrats. I think what's really interesting about Singapore, <clears throat> Singapore sits there as one of those examples. If, if you're interested in government, you wander around the world and you look at who does things well. And Singapore, there's two areas which basically a height as being good at government. Um, one is Scandinavia, which is which is certainly very good at bits of it, um, but it does cost quite a lot. So some people would add Canada in some respects. Um, but the the other area is is what's incredible about Singapore and Hong Kong as well is that Singapore state outperforms American the American state or for that matter most European states under pretty much any definition of the quality of services it delivers, yet it's incredibly small. It's 18% of GDP. Um, how does it do that? Well, the answer, which I think the Chinese are seized on, is, ah, it's because they have um, a very, they have, as China sees it, a somewhat authoritarian government, and they also have uh, some degree of industrial planning. And I think those matter much less, firstly, than that desire to keep the state very small. They, they are resolute about their attempts keep it tight. And secondly, I think the Singaporean element of having a very highly qualified civil service. There is that danger, um, I think, in these huge debates about the public sector unions. Look at what is happening in Wisconsin, for instance, and the battle that went on there. 
Um, a huge amount of that is to do with the perks that public sector unions have built up. And what's happened in the West, I think, in a big way, is that public sector unions have tended to get rewarded in the back door, is that politicians have tended to be somewhat nervous about giving too blatant pay rises. We talked about the Californian prison guards. They would be an, they would be an exception. If people are earning you know, well over $100,000 a year quite easily for, 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 um, in, the, in the Californian system, then that, that is noticeable. But in most places, the areas where politicians again and again are given in to public sector unions have been firstly in terms of other benefits, notably pensions, a huge, huge issue. Um, for the states in America. And then secondly, also, um, restrictive practices and the ability to be able to tell people, um, you know, to make it very difficult to fire bad teachers and so on. And what's interesting to me about the um, Singaporean thing is that they tend to be much harsher in terms of uh, both, say, unashamedly elitist about where they hire their civil servants, and they pay them very well. They pay some of the top, one, top ones over $2 million a year, but they demand a lot for that. And I think one of the problems, most people when they look at public sector reform assume that that is completely ghastly for someone working in the public sector. And the answer is, for many people, it would be. You know, the benefits would crumble. You would not be able to get the same multiply generous pensions. You would not be able to hide behind the same restricted practices and wonderful holiday deals. But if you are a very talented teacher or you are an extremely dynamic civil servant, then I would argue the Singaporean system is, is much better. You get the chance to run a school much earlier. If it performs well, you get given a lot of rewards much more quickly. And it's that idea that, that this is something that is not that is, that is a job to be chased and pursued, I think is a very strong, powerful element of the Singaporean study story and, and one which people haven't necessarily picked up on enough um, they, 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 they really train them, invest in them, send them to places. And that, I think, is something which is very difficult to do against the, the current sort of public sector debate in both America and Britain. Well, I think what you say makes a lot of sense, but then I, I can just envision the character of a, a bureaucrat in, in our country or in the U.K., and it would be very hard to uh, adjust the system. I mean, the statistic I think I use, which, again, you're in the, <laughs> in the position of not having the report in front of me, so I apologize if any of the statistics are wrong. But I seem to remember that Hank Poulton took a 99% pay cut to become Treasury Secretary. That was probably before his bonus. <laughs> that, was, that was moving from Goldman Sachs to being the most powerful economic official in the world. Now, at the time, a lot of people wrote lengthy screeds about how terrible it was um, that he was paid that much at Goldman Sachs, and that may well may well be the case. But actually, to me, the you know, if you if you're going to have very high quality public servants, then probably they do deserve to get paid more. And that I think is the um, that the, 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 there's a problem around that which society has to grapple with. If you're going to, under my version of the state, you might end up with fewer civil servants, but many of the, quite a few of them will be better paid. Um, John Bullock, congratulations. You uh, answered correctly. Seventy percent of China's GDP produced by enterprises uh, is produced by enterprises that are not majority owned by the state. And uh, we'll be sure that you get a one-year subscription to The Economist. Thanks so much. Uh, John Mendenhall says, in Germany, they refer to illegal or under-the-table work as 
Schwarzer bait, and people who do that work is Schwarzer baiter as well. Um, I'm not sure what that word means, but um, that means that means black Schwarzer. Black, so that would, I think that's a reference to the to the right. issue about the Chinese. Uh, uh, Johan de Mulder asks, from a taxpayer's perspective, one has to trade off the inefficiency of government services with some of the greed of the private sector. Um, nationalized health care insurance in Europe balances cost versus premium, which appears much more cost-effective compared to private health insurance. Uh, companies in the U.S. who have to make 40 or 50 percent of profit on any transaction and also pay their CEO millions of dollars. And no, we've had a few other questions on on the role of uh, in, uh, of healthcare and how expensive it is and the impact that has on uh, uh, national budgets. And I, I think you touched on this earlier, but really in the UK, healthcare is like the third rail of U.S. politics and Social Security, isn't it? It is a bit. It is, although the Tories suddenly rather accidentally seem to be announcing the biggest reforms to it for 40 years. Um, Cameron came into power saying that he would not cut health spending, which I thought was a mistake, but he, 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 he ruled that out of these cuts, which meant that he had to cut everything else much more. Um, he, I thought that if he was making 20% cuts elsewhere, he could probably cut health by 5% just to, without tarnishing the, um, the Tories' newfound respectability um, in, in terms of British politics, which you can read one way or the other. In terms of being a party that wasn't sort of out to destroy the National Health Service, which is always what the charge made against them. Um, I think healthcare is, when, whenever you look at any estimate of what is going to happen to the government, you run straight into healthcare. Because, firstly, healthcare has been a bit where public sector productivity is, hasn't really worked. It's also the bit which is just bound to get massively bigger going forward because of demographics. And one of the arguments against my argument, that I think the state will get smaller, but one of the very, very strong arguments on the other side is just look at the statistics. The amount of, you know, the aging populations will mean ever more is spent on healthcare, and healthcare tends to be an area where the government is heavily involved. Now, what I think your listeners are pointing to, which is, I think, interesting, and, and you, and, and it's, it's, an, it's a whole telephone conversation by itself, so I'm not going to go into details, but the, the issue with American healthcare is, is, you know, you do spend a huge amount on it. Do you overall get a good deal for it? Um, and the, there are some places where you can actually argue that America loses by not using the scale that comes from some of the nas more nationalized health systems. Um, that is an incredibly lengthy, complicated argument. Um, mm -hmm. but, but there is, there is definitely an element of truth in that. Uh, Clayton McCleskey, he's a writer for the Dallas Morning News, says, uh, Mr. McElthike, you talked about American voters consistently voting for more but not being willing to pay for it. Do you think that Americans have a clear concept of what they expect from their government? The voters say they want a small state but in reality want a large one. How could the Republican Party better address that inherent contradiction? Very good question. Um, the answer is, I mean, firstly, one, I wouldn't argue that American voters are alone in that. I think it just tends to be, America tends, that particular angle tends to be slightly more stressed. Everyone, everywhere, given the choice of, of getting more for less, will go for it. But the difficulty, I think, comes in this way, and I'll, I'll use California as an example. If you 
rebel against taxes and you keep on demanding more services, the government, in order to raise those services, has to keep on finding ever sneakier ways to tax you, fees, regulation, um, uh, property taxes is what they actually got rid of in Proposition 13, but you, you, you come up with a whole series of stuff around the back door, basically, which people don't quite realize they're paying for. And the ultimate sign, I think, to me, which some people say was apocryphal, but you can see it from the Tea Party about, you know, big government hands off my Medicare. That brought together all the sort of mixture of feelings that people have, that people keep on wanting more services. And it's applicable, definitely. I think, you know, it's not just voters. You can look at the media as well. You, you, You turn on, I turned on Fox the other day and saw somebody... Um, who was earlier talking about big government then jumping into how we must spend more money on the war on terror or something. Yeah, I can't quite remember the exact context. But that that is a very normal thing. You could apply that to British tabloids as well. Um, you know, if there is the slightest, every time that there is some outrageous and ghastly, um, say, paedophile instance, you will immediately get calls for new laws to deal with it. Um, and that is that is part of the problem about government, is that people don't altogether work out where their money is going. And the really, really hard issue for government in the end of it, as I said, you know, you, you get a certain amount of way by managing things better. And then you end up with this huge debate about should government be doing as many things? Because basically what has happened over the past 20 years is social transfers have grown enormously. And a lot of that money despite, again, a lot of the rhetoric, it hasn't gone to the really poor. It hasn't gone to sort of the benefit scroungers of, of you know, welfare mothers and all that. But yes, some of it's gone there, but a huge amount of it has also gone straight towards the middle because that's where elections are won and lost. And the question, to use a British example within that, is, you know, is it right for someone like me to get a free bus pass um, when mm-hmm. I hit 61? And that, to me, seems, seems madness. This is something set up for poor people. It should not be for for, for editors underpaid that they are. Well, right, as you said, it's going to the middle and also to the elderly, and as we, as our populations age, there's going to be a a lot more demand on these services. I want to be sure that I give one of our listeners a copy of God is Back, the book that you wrote two years ago with Adrian Woolridge, and the question, our challenge question is this. According to a recent OECD report on housing and the economic recovery, financial deregulation may have boosted real real house prices across industrial countries between 1980 and 2005 by as much as 3%, 13%, or 30%. Be the first to answer correctly this question, and we'll send you God is Back, uh, which George Will said, the best political book in years. Uh, Tom Hopkins, one of our listeners, wants to know or ask you to comment on QE2, uh, recent significant commodity inflation, which the Fed says is only temporary. Um, Will we see a QE3 in 2012? Very good question. Um, I sort of hope not, because it would mean that it would mean that it's that the the economy doesn't need it, Um, and, and I think. My impression is that that is the way that central bankers are beginning to think. They've tried this. They've tried this substance um, of pumping money into into the economy, not through interest rates, but through effectively, I suppose, printing money effectively. Um, it, it, and it's it hasn't 
there are two views on it. Either it hasn't worked, it certainly hasn't worked spectacularly well in the way that some people initially thought. On the other hand, it doesn't seem to have done as much harm as some feared. Now, you now have the issue of rising um, commodity prices. That, that That is a real problem. It's an interesting kind of reversal. You go and see, for years of my life on, the, as a, on my side as a business journalist, you know, moving away from commodities and moving sort of higher up the value chain was such a large part about what companies and people were supposed to do. Well, now it turns out things like farms and mines and things are, are worth money again. And some of the demand for commodities, some of the problems we just seem to do with the oil price, the oil price, a lot of political problems around that, part of the demands for commodities are from the emerging markets needing more. Those are feeding into inflation. But over, and again, I am worried about inflation, but on the whole, I'm more worried about getting through this particular period without sinking back into depression and deflation. So I tend to be someone who's, who's still slightly more worried on that side than the other one. It, it just strikes me that deflation is a, is a real killer. Inflation is ghastly, but we sort of know how to work it and my, uh, how to handle it. And although I think you're, it's, it's a very, very good question, and I can't give a precise answer to it. I, I obviously hope we're not, we don't have to go back to it. But if necessary, under some circumstances, it might work. Mm-hmm. We have about 10 minutes left, and uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, and you mentioned this in your introduction, about what are the options for the longer term. Uh, one is what the state does, and the other is changing the structure. And quite a bit of your article focused on technology. Uh, what are some of the technological uh, improvements that might be made to make the government uh, more, more effective and efficient? Well, this, this really interests me because what's, what's the obvious thing over the past 30, 40 years is how little technology has really made a difference to the public sector. It has revolutionized the private sector. It has, you know, just think of banking and ATM machines. Mm-hmm. Think of the way that factories now look. Think of the way that businesses now run. Well, government is sort of miles behind on all this. And indeed, some of the examples of people trying to introduce technology to government have been spectacular failures. I think technology, now there is a chance, and it's always dangerous when something hasn't worked at all to say, well, now it might do. I think there is a chance where technology is beginning to work in, I think, two or three different ways. The biggest one is one I've already alluded to, is I think it's the spread of information. It's the, the, the fact that, if I'm correct, or certainly all the statistics show that the public sector is so wantonly more inefficient in some areas than it needs to be, that you don't need to have, um, even, even depending, even if the politics in different countries are different, you don't need to spend umpteen times more. You know, why does America spend twice as much on health care as Sweden, and yet Americans live short Litigation. <laughs> that's a, that is quite a, you know, that, that should at least start, but, but the fact that those statistics are beginning to get out, the fact that education statistics are beginning to appear, that way in which technology is working, the fact that you can now, I mean, people have Facebook sites, parents looking at schools, you, that that sort of thing is beginning to happen. In fact, look at the way that the teachers' unions in America have, you know, their reputation, I think, has changed over the past two or three years as this sort of stuff has begun to get out. And you can see that some sort of schools, often ones in which they don't particularly play a prominent role, are doing much better than others. 
That you know, you're right, and as you see with hospitals, how you can pull up information on the Internet and see which hospitals have uh, better rates and as far as success as well as cost. I mean, all of that does make a big difference. I think that is a, that's a huge area. I think the second area where technology begins to make a difference is it's something to do with structure. There is The consultants tell me, and you could argue they have a massive vested interest in this, that still health and education are still relatively low on the levels of computerization compared to other bits, so we, we could do more stuff there. I think the most interesting area in some ways is the level to which technology or the new fronts of technology are throwing the problem of the state back at people. Take, for instance, healthcare. If, as I said, um, American healthcare, if, you, if, you, if America keeps on spending ever more on healthcare at the current rate, then eventually your entire economy will be composed of healthcare within 40 or 50 years. Well, that obviously can't happen. But one reason why you might imagine that might begin to stop sooner is if you can start using people to do more of their own healthcare for themselves. And I don't mean, you know, conducting open heart surgery on, on yourself. So I do mean in terms of monitoring, you know, that the, the really expensive diseases are the chronic ones. It's heart disease, it's diabetes. It's all these ones which add up to unscheduled emissions. The, the most expensive thing you can do really in healthcare is to have a chronic disease which isn't treated and then suddenly it involves incredibly lengthy stays in hospitals, it involves massive amounts of drugs and so on. If you can have systems which are beginning to evolve whereby people can monitor their own performance um, you know, they can send in, you can send in your heart rate, you can measure your cholesterol, you can put in, you send that in, some, there's a system actually in Britain where people text it on a week, you know, weekly basis to an automatic machine, which then tells them either to increase their drug or decrease it or whether they need to go see a doctor. This sounds like a version of some sort of um, nightmarish cost-cutting um, you know, that pleasure thing where the insurance company is trying to get you to do all the work. But also in some ways, if, if a lot of it is just taking readings and then dealing with it, then you might be better measuring those readings yourself 52 times a year than trying to go and see your doctor four times a year, um, who by definition is not going to be able to do things as, as, as regularly as you do. So I think, and, and you look at schools, you can look at the way that testing via the internet is beginning to, that parents are beginning to use that with children. There's some element whereby some of the productivity numbers within the inefficient state are beginning to change, I think. Not as much as some people hope, but there is a sort of, there is a beginning of a change there. So could we say that now you're an optimist? <laughs> are you cautious? Yeah, my general position on the world is one of par paranoid optimism. I think, I think that's the last time I came to Dallas. Is that I do, I do, that's, that's my, most of the probabilities in the world, I think, are quite good at the moment. Um, I mean, quite being. You know, I think Egypt might sort of migrate towards something like Turkey. I think that um, that the, the China will probably work out sort of all right. I think that America will begin to deal with these things. My, my, my paranoia comes from all the possibilities that actually Obama and the Republicans don't begin to deal with the deficit, that China doesn't do anything really to do with its government and faces the most almighty problems. Um, Let me ask you about so something that we were so on weren't even thinking about uh, a week ago, and that is Japan and the tsunami and what's happening now with the uh, nuclear reactors. Um, how has the Japan, how has the state uh, really responded to this? Well, initially, 
in some ways better than one dared hope. You have, again, a very dysfunctional sort of government in Japan, very weak prime minister. And to begin with, actually, they seem to get hold of it quite well. Um, Japanese, it was amazingly stoic um, people. The bit which particularly stayed in my brain was watching the, them queue up to pay their taxes in Tokyo when they, they had the radioactivity just down the road. They, they, there is that on the whole, to begin with, started to go well. The, the problem in Japan is that the nuclear industry is the epicenter of most voters' concerns about the chumminess of their government towards industry. It was a huge part of the LDP's, uh, the previous sort of government's problems. It links into it. And any appearance that somebody is not telling you the whole truth begins to um, have terrible repercussions in that area. I do think there is, uh, and, uh, and, and you know, the first thing one should say very obviously is that this is an incredibly kind of tragic moment for Japan and for a huge amount of people there, but I do think there is, there is, a, there is an element whereby Japan has changed a lot after previous um, natural disasters. Kobe, it seemed to go back inside. It had the Second World War after that. It rebounded spectacularly. You had the nationalism from an earlier earthquake. There is a possibility that this particular one could could push it in a new direction. Well, one of the things I found so interesting about watching this last night and, and this morning is that you have the Japanese government saying one thing, knowing that many Japanese citizens have access to CNN and hearing what uh, U.S. Uh, specialists are saying about maybe um, uh, increased danger. Um, it really does show the impact of global media. I think that was the big that that was the moment when actually my own impression changed. I'd sort of previously thought that the reactor thing seemed to be going reasonably well, but when the American government suddenly appeared saying no, um, that was a that was a change. And that that again is an effect of the, the information getting round is is an incredibly difficult thing. Um, it's interesting you look at Mubarak and stuff. We all sat there for years thinking the only alternative to Mubarak was the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, the people who got rid of him were those people who were looking at things on Facebook and email, and particularly actually Al Jazeera, the the Arabic television station. You know, that, those are the people who suddenly saw it was possible not to really have to deal with people like him, and it and it did stop. Uh, Johan de Mulder will be enjoying your book, John. We'll be sending a copy to Johan de Mulder, who knew that uh, financial deregulation may have boosted real, ha- uh, real house prices across industrial countries by as much as 30% between 1980 and 2005. Johan, thank you so much for listening, and we'll get you a copy of John's book, God is Back, uh, this weekend. Um, Let's talk briefly about about Libya. Uh, again, uh, another event that uh, the United Nations yesterday uh, uh, passed a resolution um, using essentially any force necessary, and we saw, already saw a reaction this morning from the Libyan government. Do you think that will hold, and, and what will happen there? What might happen? It's hard to say. I haven't. I'm. I'm the, you, they, they may have said something in the past um, couple of hours where I've been out of out of connection, but as, I think it is extremely welcome that this has happened. It's a, it's a very, very difficult um, area, not least for America, because of what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. But I do think there was a, a prospect of Libyans being slaughtered in front of television cameras around the world was imminent and would have horrified people, I think, on a, on a level, not just, I mean, obviously, it's a horrific and bad thing one wants to stop by itself. But also, I think it would have been a 
a body blow to the idea that the West stands for anything at all, because here you had people rising up. Uh, they may not all be people with whom we are fully sympathetic, but they were rising up against a pretty tyrannical regime. And the idea that we were willing to see that regime just slaughter them, I think, was a was a frightening one. Um, and so, from that point of view, I'm I'm even even allowing for the fact that I think this is a less than perfect solution. I think it is it's it's, it's very good news that we've done it. And um, you know, perhaps it is uh, one success for the United Nations, the much maligned United Nations. Although I did note on the Security Council, I think five countries, including Russia and China, abstained. Yes, Russia, China, and also uh, Brazil as well. Um, I, I, it is a success for the United Nations. The more interesting question to me, which I'm intrigued to see how it plays out, is to what extent it's been a success for Barack Obama. I think, on the whole, he did quite a good job with Egypt, to the extent that we achieved what most people wanted to happen without America seeming to pull it in too much. I think with... Uh, Libya, and also for that matter, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia's um, influence there, or its, its sudden introduction of troops there. I think those are areas where I think he has performed less well. Um, there's mm-hmm. two schools of thought, one of which you might subscribe to, which is that he's been wonderfully Machiavellian about this, and yet others take the lead, and so something will happen which will have won't have America's fingerprints on it. And the other is that he's dithered and by dithering, he has gradually made it ever more difficult um, to do things. And I think one one interesting thought to throw into that is the idea that a couple of days ago, I think um, Mr. Gates, the Defence Secretary, said when asked about the Saudi troops going into Bahrain, said that he didn't know about that. Well, I think if America had made its position on Libya somewhat clearer and more forcefully earlier on, I don't think the Saudis would have dared do that without telling America first. Very, very interesting. And one thing for certain, John, we'll be able to read more of your thoughts and those of your colleagues in, in, in The Economist. And I want to thank you so much. I, we can only imagine how busy you are as editor-in-chief and for you to spend time with members of the World Affairs Councils across the country and other listeners. We're just very, very grateful. And, again, congratulations on, on the success of The Economist under, under your leadership. We certainly enjoyed being with you. I want to remind our audience, if you are not already a subscriber, please do go to economist.com to start your subscription today. Please also visit bfwworld.org forward slash global IQ to sign up for the latest updates and information on global IQ with The Economist. There, I hope you'll register for our April 21st program, Special Report California, featuring The Economist West Coast correspondent and author of this special report, Andreas Kluth. The World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth is one of 80 councils around the country. To find a World Affairs Council near you, please visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. Today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank and Jones Day. Remember, together, The Economist and the World Affairs Council put you on top of the world.